Welcome to the uh, strategiccrisis.com podcast. I'm Jeff Nyquist, the host for the podcast. And with, with me is uh, uh, Serge Kabut, who is a Ukrainian national, now an American citizen. And we're here to discuss the tactics of the former Soviet Union and uh, the Kremlin today. Uh, we're here to discuss how they operate, how they maintain uh, their strategy to dominate Europe and destroy the United States. And uh, Serge, are you there? Yes. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Uh, of, of special interest now, you were you were telling me this is we're coming close to you know the celebration here in America. We're celebrating Thanksgiving, but in Ukraine, they have an official day for celebrating the Ukraine famine. Well, it's when, not uh, le- not exactly celebrate. I would call it commemorating. Commemorating, right? Not celebrating, commemorating uh, the Ukraine famine, um, which is what the last Saturday in November. Yes, that is correct. And by the way, the idea to have a day and to uh, commemorate it by, um, among other things, symbolically putting a, ca- a lighted candle next to your window for the whole day. That idea came from an American uh, uh, national, an American citizen, uh, Robert Mace, uh, who, uh, before he died, he was considered to be number one researcher on the issue. And he died in Kiev? Well, yes, he died in, uh, in Kiev. He died under very suspicious circumstances. Um, well, this is something that looked like a special operation to kill the, uh, this gentleman. Uh, it's very hard, of course, to prove anything, but uh, he received a certain medical attention at some point in Kiev and uh, was even hospitalized. Mm, but the, it's a long story. It may take, well, another two or three podcasts just to get into details. But then he died, and the collection of materials of historical evidence that that he gathered was vandalized um, as far as I remember either right after he died or very close before he and died. And this is how many years ago now? Um, let me to make sure that I gave you the um, the exact um, uh, it's, it's several years ago now isn't it? Well, yeah, it's. I, I believe it was in 2003, mm-hmm. but um, just before will, the just before the Orange Revolution. Right. Ukraine, yes. Right. Right. Let me make sure that that we have the uh, the correct data here. Well, yeah. So, so that, that's that's. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I called uh, his re- real name is James Mace. It's not a Robert. Uh, it's James, James Mace. Uh, and so this guy was uh, was an important person in trying to remember what the communists had done to the Ukrainian people. And I was about to kind of explain that to those listeners who don't quite understand that the communists killed between 7 and 13 million Ukrainians with a terror famine in the early 1930s ordered by Stalin. Uh, and it was to uh, destroy the prosperous farmers in Ukraine and to make sure that the Soviet Union had absolute control 
of agricultural production in the country, that there was no free property in land. Yes. Uh, um, well, the he died in in 2004. He uh, was only 52. James Mays. He was 52. James. He died in 2004. What, what, what was the official reason for his death? Well, uh, I believe it was a heart attack. I'm looking mm. at the Wikipedia article on mm. him. Um, I'm trying to find out. Uh, it doesn't say here the official cause. I believe it, it was it was some some sort of a heart attack that was recorded as for the official cause. But with the with the situation in in Ukraine and in this particular in this particular case, it's very 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 hard to learn the actual fact. He the, this gentleman was so devoted to the cause that he moved to Ukraine and actually uh, resettled in Ukraine. That's that's how he cared. And uh, uh, he collected 200 hours of audio recordings of the witnesses of the tragic, tra tragic genocidal event uh, of the Ukrainian famine of 1932-1933. He collected that material in the United States from the U Ukrainians who live in the United States. Um, the tapes of these eyewitnesses' accounts were at, at a certain point, in, they were found scattered over the floor of the library, vandalized, and some totally destroyed. That's yeah. what happened. So that's why there is a strong suspicion that he didn't die of natural cause at the age of 52. I see. I see. Now, what's interesting is that the attempt to, to this day to resist, it's almost like uh, Nazis attacking a historian of the Holocaust. It is. Uh, and perpetrating a further crime. But there's a big difference between the Nazi regime and the Soviet regime. The Nazi yes. regime was defeated and crushed. Its leaders were put on trial and hanged. Uh, the ones that weren't hanged committed suicide, like uh, Goering and Hitler and Goebbels and uh, SS, the head of the SS, uh, Heinrich Himmler. So it, it uh, in, in the Soviet Union, uh, its collapse was sort of announced and arranged by the politicians. It was done peacefully. It was done with the KGB's uh, connivance. And we are told by defectors like uh, Jan Sena and uh, Golitsyn that there was a plan to collapse the Warsaw Pact and to c collapse the Soviet Union going back to the late 50s, that this was an idea that was cooked up by uh, KGB General Dmitry or uh, KGB General Mironov uh, back at that time, and was handed over to uh, the head of the KGB uh, Alexander Shalepin, and carried on by successors like Andropov. I've even heard people refer to it as the Andropov Plan. And of course, we know that Gorbachev, like Edward Shevardnadze and Gader Aliyev, uh, and other leaders in the former Soviet republics were protégés of Andropov. Um, That's correct. And what's really interesting is, is the, the, the realism and the great stagemanship that's gone into the collapse of the Soviet Union. Not only is the stagemanship kind of a, a, an inversion of what Stalin did, uh, you know, the Ukraine famine was presented as a non-event in the 1930s. And in the West, nobody really knew what was happening. And when 
rumors of a famine in Ukraine got out in, in 1933, I think it was, George Bernard Shaw had been in Ukraine, the famous uh, British writer, and he was asked about it, and he said, no, everyone I saw was plump, it's ridiculous, there was no famine. Well, of course, what people see and what is real are not the same thing. And with the Russian Federation today, we have a similar thing. We have a war in Chechnya. And you were telling me some extraordinary uh, facts. There was an interview recently with the former uh, 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 president of Chech Chechnya's wife, uh, right. President Dudayev. His wife was, what was it, on Russian television that she appeared? Uh, well, it was uh, it, the interview was published by the one of the prominent Russian newspapers, supposedly liberal. Uh, the newspaper is called Commerçant. Oh yes. And uh, yeah, uh, the woman's name is Alla Dudayeva, mm -hmm. and uh, she. Well, it's not the first thing she publishes. I uh, looked. Uh, at several interviews that she published uh, since uh, the middle of the 90s. And uh, uh, basically, it's very similar to the previous interviews that she was giving to now, the now mass let's media. let's give some background to the, to the listeners on this uh, Chechen war. It's been my, uh, I've hinted at it in my writings, and I've written about it before. And, of course, Alexander um, Litvinenko, who was killed with polonium in London, wrote a book uh, which... Um, which on the subject in which he uh, he stated quite frankly yes. that the Chechen war was created by the KGB and the MVD and the and the Russian general staff, and it was created for political purposes. And I believe, uh, using the analysis, the the Galitzin methodology, that there's a strategic deception purpose in the Chechen war. And we're going to get into this. And of course, Dudayev uh, was a strategic a bombing general, a strategic bomber general under uh, the Soviet Union, who suddenly discovered his Chechen roots and led this supposed patriotic movement to make Chechnya independent. And Shamil Basayev, a Soviet paratrooper trained by the uh, by the GRU and, and, and by Spetsnaz, decides he's suddenly a freedom fighter. But when we look closely into the biographies of these men, what we find is that they were involved in a lot of shenanigans and games, the Kremlin games, that they were likely Kremlin agents. In fact, we have testimony to the case uh, that has emerged uh, in, in when the Russian press was freer than it is today, um, and from dissidents and people like uh, Livinenko, who uh, point this out. Um, in fact, even, uh, I've been mentioning this, uh, Mufti Kadyrov, who was the... Uh, one of the le leading religious figures in Chechnya, had written a... And he's a, a father of a current Chechen president, right, by the way. Right, he was a former Chechen president and, and father of the current Chechen president, exactly. And Kadyrov wrote, after the Second Chechen War began, that it was, it was all fabrication created by the KGB and the MVD and the Russian general staff, and that Chechens should stay out of it, that it was sort of a Russian concoction. Um, and and that it was right. the, the the events. In fact, he claimed that the events that started the Second Chechen War were fabrications. That the incursion into Dagestan, in fact, was arranged by Russian security officials. In fact, uh, a former Prime Minister uh, Sergei Stepashin, and not only that, Stepashin later admitted publicly that uh, that the that the Chechen War didn't re didn't really start because of the apartment bombings. 
which we know from testimony was were probably uh, caused by the uh, by the Russian secret police uh, that supposedly was blamed on Chechens, but that um, uh, is, now I just lost my thought. Um, well, Jeff, saying? you told me several several Stepashin said, said that in March of that year, several months before the war began, they were planning it in Moscow. That's what I was going to say. Yes. So, and, and of right, course, right. Uh, it, it, but what's interesting is Dudayev is a figure who, and there's a number of figures, in, and we should talk about some of these people, who have died more than once, or have died already and have memorials. Oh, yeah. And they're, and they're alive. It's perfectly demonstrable that they're alive. These are Soviet officials, oh, yeah. people who have posed as revolutionaries during the fake revolutionary period of 1989 to 91, and in the Chechen War people who were dead who come back to life. There was a Chechen general who was uh, declared dead and showed up at a press, press conference and even made the statement mm -hmm. that Dudayev was still alive after Dudayev, the president oh, of Chechen, well. had supposedly been killed. Now, now this is why it, it interests me that that the wife of Dudayev is on, on TV uh, because is. this is... Uh, let's talk about Dudayev's supposed death and, and what happened. He was supposedly on a cell phone call or a satellite phone call, and a Russian uh, missile from a Russian fighter bomber homed in on him and blew him up in his uh, in his car and killed him, along with other people. That's how it was reported. Yeah, that's, that's right. And and, uh, and in fact, mm -hmm. there's I've heard the claim made that U.S. intelligence helped uh, the Russians uh, in homing in on the signal and killing this man. Uh, which is which is also a, a very difficult to confirm and probably uh, a totally spurious. But um, uh, but what's really interesting is, was there any proof that this happened and that Dudayev died? We have the testimony of his well, wife. We have the testimony of Shamel Vasayev, but we don't have a body. We don't even know where no. where this guy is buried, do we? Right. That is correct. His uh, supposedly widow claims that she buried him in a secret place. Isn't it amazing? And there are no witnesses. That and the also, that a president and supposed national hero of a country was buried secretly. And get this, get this. I know somebody, and actually th this person is a friend of mine. I know somebody who was visiting Dudaev's home Sometime, right before the first Chechen was started. That's 1994. Which, that would be 1994. That is correct. That is correct. And who met at Dudayev's home. Of course, he met Dudayev and Dudayev's wife. But he also met an ex-president of Georgia, Mr. Gamsakurdia, who, by official account, was already dead and dead twice. And this is <laughs> fascinating. Yes, Gam Security supposedly was uh, was shot and left in a shallow grave somewhere in Georgia, as I recall. When uh, well, discovered yeah. not, they came back from the Kremlin to restore order in Georgia, and Gam Security was supposedly kind of a a freedom fighter maniac who uh, who had gone out of control. Um, but uh, so well, your friend, and, and, your friend was at was at Dudayev's house in '94, and Gam Security was there at the house. That is. 
That is right. That is right. And by the way, if you open the Wikipedia, it is amazing, isn't it? When you open Wikipedia article on on Gamsahurdia, you find that there are it somehow for some reason there are more than one version of how Gamsahurdia died. Uh, supposedly, oh, by, oh, by the way, some... that's, that's very Soviet. By the way, to have more than one version of events. Sometimes in yes, Soviet exact... history. We have three or four different versions of the same event. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so, likely none of them are ever true, by the way. Well, that's probably the reason why several versions are disseminated. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, that's too good stuff. Yes, I'm, I'm interested, your friend must have been a bit shocked to see a dead person walking around, a famous dead person walking around his house. Well, it was known that Gamsahurdia before that, sometime in 90, in, well, I, I'm not sure about the dates, but probably 92 or 93, officially Gamsahurdia was uh, receiving a refuge in Chechnya under the Dudayev uh, patronage. So it was, it, it, it is known that they were supposedly friends. By the way, it's very interesting that Gamsahurdia in 1970s, he was arrested for anti-Soviet activities, but he admitted his guilt, and not just admitted his guilt. He went on Soviet TV and publicly to 250 million Soviet people watching that, admitted that he was guilty, that he was supposedly hired by Americans or other enemies of the Soviet Union, and that he is regretting what he did. And then he was let go from the jail. Now, it's, now, uh, now Zviad Gamsakurdia was the, supposedly the first uh, a dissident, a Georgian dissident, and the first democratically elected president of Georgia. And supposedly he died right. on December 31st, 1993, supposedly. So your friend in 94, yes. more than a year later, is seeing him at the home of Dudayev, who is supposed to well, be dead I'm, as well, but we don't know where his... His gravesite. Yes, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what what months was it. Was it was it summer or autumn of '94 when uh, somebody that I knew met Gamsahurdia there? But it's extremely interesting that uh, Dudayev is someone whose death is also under a big question mark. By the way, in this fresh interview that Dudayeva widow quote unquote gave to Kamersant. She was asked by the journalist, why, when you talk about your husband's death, you keep so cool? It's kind of strange. <laughs> so, see, what I mean is our suspicion, our suspicion is not just ours. It's not no. just Serge Kabul no. and Jeff Nyquist who are, you know, so weird anti-communists who suspect everybody everywhere. No, it's a common thing. Yes. It's something that it's not proven. And, by the way, it's interesting. When, when you read uh, the Wikipedia article, which actually collects, we know how Wikipedia works. It's mm -hmm. quotes from reliable sources that people get there and then they link to the sources of the material. So, when you read the part of the death and burial of Gamsahurdia, you can actually... Uh, learn that Gamsahurdia's body supposedly was buried at least 
four times. Four times. Buried and reburied. And the last time it was buried, I understand, in 2007 in Georgia. Before that, supposedly there was uh, a, uh, a... How to say this? When, like, with scientific expertise, a, a, a test of the body, a DNA test done in Russia on the remains of Gamsakhurdia. And then the Russian specialists uh, supposedly, uh, well, I have to say this all the time, because when we deal with the, with the post-communist countries, it, everything is blurry. Everything is supposedly, right? So they supposedly came to the conclusion that remains do belong to Gamsakhurdia. But why four times? Well, it's interesting because the the other the other uh, culprit, uh, Dudayev, uh, is also buried in the unknown place. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. It seems to be a pattern among some people. Now, it's very interesting. I I I worked. I I edited uh, Robert Bukhar's book. That's it's doing very well. And I understand. I talked to him last week, and he says his book. Uh, you know, and reality be damned is the title of the book about the the revolution in Eastern Europe in 1989. Uh -huh. And uh, one of the people he interviews in the book is a man named Zivchek, uh, who is a oh, secret, yeah. po secret police official. And and the great complaint that Zivchek uh, makes is that uh, well, he died. He was the one guy. There was one person who died in the Velvet Revolution. And and it uh -huh. was this protester. Well, it was Zivchek. He was a secret policeman ordered to to create a phony death, to dramatize. Which, so he wasn't actually a protester. He was a secret police officer yes. who was paid to fake the death his of own the protester. Death. Yes, yes, right. Yes. Yeah, he was and provided in, in with fact, the false document. Here we had on November 17th celebrated the 20th anniversary of the, the Velvet Revolution in uh, Czechoslovakia. And Zivchak, who was supposed to, after doing this stunt, after organizing these, this uh, riot or demonstration and then a dead body, which he impersonated the dead person who was carried off in an ambulance, that there is actually, he's one of the few living people that has a little memorial that every November 17th they put flowers and and stuff on the on the on the memorial. So this is, is his guy, name I, on that memorial. Well, no, I I don't. I think it's the name of someone else that that he assumed just the name oh, yeah. invented, you know. But he was supposed yes. to go to um, he was supposed to go to Moscow. Now it might have been his name on there. I come to think of it, but he was supposed to go to Moscow after faking his death. But he didn't, and he didn't really like the strategy of the faking the collapse of communism and using other structures to continue the Eastern Bloc without the communist label. And so he's been rather outspoken, but he can't get anyone to believe him. Uh, and he's been, he's, he's talked about it. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's very comical that here's a guy, here's one of the guys that kind of didn't cooperate totally with his own, you know, disappearance. But uh, this is, this is a common thing, faking your death for a political demonstration and then disappearing and going off to live somewhere in Russia where, you know, Western eyes, prying Western eyes can't see and verify that you are indeed alive. It is fascinating. Yeah. It is something that is so alien to the Americans, to, well, to the Western way of life. But it actually happens. And there is another story, another very interesting story, very similar to this, 
and it happened in Ukraine in, to, in the year 2000 when a journalist disappeared, also of Georgian ethnicity, which is interesting. His last name is Gongadze. That, that story on the Gongadze disappearance created a huge political crisis in Ukraine. Totally isolated president of Ukraine of that time, Mr. Leonid Kuchma, because he was accused in ordering to kill that journalist. But what is interesting... uh, He was publicly embarrassed because a tape recording of him making statements against this uh, Gengadze were then published. That is correct. That is exactly correct. And uh, what is interesting, that Gengadze body was actually never found. And when the body, supposedly his body, was found, it, it had no head on it. And then it was taken for uh, for testing and analysis and ex- expert opinion to Germany and to Russia. And there were four testing conducted. And two of them showed that it is, in fact, Gangadze body. But two of them showed that it is not in a million years his body. And well, let, me, let, me, one, let me ask you a question. The Russian test showed that it was Gangadze and the German test showed that it wasn't? One Russian showed that it was, one Russian showed that it wasn't. The same with German. One yes, one no. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. See, you have have several versions of of the event, and then you're getting confused. And see, this is typical informational war strategy. You disorient the public. You just make the public... kind of like confused and and then you can play anything you know like you don't they don't really know what's true or false they don't really know what to believe yeah it's exactly how you have how you create a mass confusion well, that's what course, i call it mass the, the the significance of chechnya in all this and ukraine is significant too but chechnya particularly for the united states is in the fact that i'm an all zawari in 1996, traveled to Chechnya, traveled to uh, um, Dagestan, and that uh, Alexander Litvinenko was responsible for part of his security so that the uh, the local police wouldn't uh, bump into him and arrest him and expose his, his visit to Russia. And um, uh, this is how one of the reasons that Alexander Litvinenko knew that the number two guy in Al Qaeda, probably the real number one guy in Al Qaeda, Ayman al Zawari, is actually a longtime KGB agent. And that he actually made this public statement, this public revelation, uh, in I believe it was July of 2005, which is a little more than a year before his death in London, mm-hmm. poisoned by Kremlin agents sent over with polonium uh, to tend to kill him. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because 9-11 was a huge event in the United States, and the idea that the masterminds and organizers of 9-11, the leaders of that organization, were KGB agents, is highly significant. It's also significant that I was told by two Czech individuals, Peter Sobolka and, of course, Hansa Molina, that uh, they, in a conversation with the former uh, captain of the uh, of, of the Czech intelligence, of Vladimir Huchin, that uh, that in fact um, Mohammed Atta was trained in the uh-huh. 1980s in, in a communist uh, terrorist training camp, 
in, in the former communist Czechoslovakia. So, you know, these these things, we can't verify some of these things. I think the, there's been enough uh, confirming testimony on uh, Litvinenko's claim about, I mean, there was a big piece in the Wall Street Journal about Ivan Olazawari going to Russia. Um, yes, it was published uh, in 2002, by the yeah, way. Yeah, and I think it was Andrew Higgins that wrote it. But uh, yes, but it, and, and Jeff, let me let me interrupt you for a second and say yeah. this. By the way, the Russian KGB, which is called FSB today, they mm -hmm. confirmed officially that yes, indeed, they had Al Zawahiri yes. for six months under yes. their custody, but they never knew who he was. Yes, this is what that. they claim. Yes, and he is he is. He was at that moment on the list of the most wanted world terrorists, and they claim they didn't want who no knew who he was. Never believe what Russians say. Never believe them. No, you can't believe it, and it's ridiculous. It's interesting that in the Wall Street Journal article about it, that apparently when uh, when uh, Ayman al Zawari went back among his Muslim brothers, and he was asked to account for his disappearance into Russia. Uh, many in, in Al-Qaeda did not believe his story of his trip to Russia, that he was uh, hiding something, and they left the organization at that time. And I don't know what Higgins' sources were, but it was right there in, in one of the most reputable uh, newspapers in the United States. So um, And in the world, by the way. And in the world, in the world, no doubt. You know, it's way up there. And, and, of course, there's been very little comment on this. And especially now, the thing that really, really gets me about this is that if you, the first claim that Al-Qaeda has nuclear weapons actually came from Yosef Badansky in a 1999 published account called, uh, a book called uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, A Man Who Declared War on America. And there's a, couple chapters in there about the uh, bin Laden plan and among that is it talking about how al-qaeda acquired a number of nuclear weapons a significant number of them through Chechnya and and so Interesting. Uh, it, it is, even has been extended to the claim that this is one of the things that Ayman al-Zawari was possibly engaged in going to Russia now if Ayman al-Zawari is a longtime Russian agent it wasn't that the nuclear weapon, and if nuclear weapons end up in the hands of, of Al Qaeda, it isn't that that uh, these weapons were smuggled out of Russia. They were given to Al Qaeda to use on the United States, or else this story, this mythology, was made up so that when nuclear weapons are detonated in American cities, we won't suspect Russia. We will suspect these Arabs living in caves out in in Pakistan or Afghanistan. And, Listen, uh, Jeff, I, I want to make it's a point. It's an alibi for Russia. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, yes, it's a very important to make this point. It's probably the most important point to make, and we've discussed it in the past many times. The nuclear weapon is a very special thing in terms that only some states, and by the way, rich states, and by the way, advanced in a way states, possess them. And nuclear weapon always has a very sophisticated way to prevent misuse of the weapon by anyone except the top leadership of the state. And it goes for every nuclear state. There is yes. no we, we, exception we, for that. Uh, we have a name for it. We call them permissive action links, PALS. The permissive action links, what it is is that you have to enter the code 
the proper code That's into right. the device in order to allow the warhead to arm. If you don't enter the code, it isn't a nuclear weapon, and it can't be used as such. Um, so it, it, yes, it is, and this is what Colonel Stanislaw Lunev told me when I first discussed this issue of Al-Qaeda having nuclear weapons. He was quite skeptical, because what he told me was that, that there are, were two people who created these codes in Russia. One of them was dead, and the other one lived under permanent guard, voluntarily, in a secure uh, luxury apartment uh, near or on the GRU headquarters, something to that effect. I don't remember the exact details. Uh, so that um, there would be no way that this code could ever get out to anyone else. Uh, absolutely protected through fail-safe measures. Um, and, and the United States uh, uses special measures to protect these codes. Um, so you can't, I mean, an American submarine commander uh, commanding a, a ballistic missile submarine cannot even launch his nuclear weapons without the code. You yes, know, that's right. To, and even even more, nobody, nobody in the government of a nuclear state, except the top leadership, except a very specific proceed following, except following very specific procedure, possibly involving more than one person, not just the president, right. but someone else, like the top military commander. So the, this is this is probably the most secretive and most protected procedure that could ever be created and that that exists out there. And, so and yet this, what, this, what I'm this rather obvious disinformation, and I'll just finish your thought, telling us that, uh, that this Al-Qaeda has nuclear weapons and wants to strike us, has been planted deep in the American psyche after 9-11, and we've been conditioned to think this way now for eight years. Which is a complete, complete lie and, yes. and tale and whatever you call it, it's not true. If a nuclear weapon is activated and detonated anywhere, that means, and there is no exception, that means that there is a state power out there that gave a permission for it. Yes. And it's well, only and, and even, one of even, the nuclear states. Even more than that, I don't believe that Al-Qaeda will be given nuclear weapons. Uh, I believe that if they're delivered, they'll be uh, delivered by Spetsnaz, Russian Spetsnaz commandos. Uh, because in, in November, before I'd even heard the name of bin Laden, in November of 1998, I was at Potomac Television doing a, a little uh, recording bit there, and Colonel Stanislav Lunev was there. He was doing one as well. And uh, they they get, they do makeup on you, and you have to wait. So he he likes to smoke. We were out uh, on the back uh, patio of this place, or it's not a patio; it's sort of a Roman-style building. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, we were out by one of the columns in the rear of the building on the steps. And I asked him. I said, you know, I've I've read all these Soviet books about winning and fighting a nuclear war, and I understand in principle that you can do it, but I don't understand specifically how you avoid avoid a counterstrike from the American side. I know that there's a way to do it. I just haven't thought of what it is. And this is what he said to me. He said, if you ever hear that Arab terrorists have detonated a nuclear bomb in an American city, don't believe it. And I was, I was stunned. I never, I never thought of that before. And I said, well, why wouldn't I believe it? He said, because it will be Spetsnaz, it will be my people.
it would be Russians. And I, I said to him, well, I said, well, well, then what happens? And he says, well, within so many months, weeks or months after that, the missiles will come from Russia. But it's a, it's a, it's part of a maskarovka. It's a, it's a diversionary attack. The whole thing is a deception. This whole thing with Al Qaeda and 9/11, it's a preparatory, you know, it's the great terror, it's terrorism, that is perpetrated to divert us away from our real threat towards a manufactured threat. And it's an oh, old dear. style. It's an old style Russian technique. In fact, Viktor Suvorov, another GRU defector, wrote about it extensively. He used the term "great terror." He described it in perfect detail in a book uh, titled um, *Spetsnaz*, written in the 1980s. And you can you can pick it up, pick up an old copy at the store. You can read it online. It, the book is available online. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the importance of these uh, deceptions within deceptions, uh, in setting up a nuclear attack, you can't successfully have a nuclear attack on the United States if you don't set up an Islamic threat. If you don't invade Afghanistan and then create the conditions for an Afghanistan that is in this, this chaotic condition from which people like bin Laden can emerge out of it, you can't create it unless you've penetrated the uh, clerics of the Islamic world, unless you've had an Iranian revolution and you've had yourself implanted in places like Yemen, by the way, which, look, there was a communist regime in Yemen in the 19, what, 80s? Was it the 70s yes, and the 80s? Correct. And this is the one Arab country that yeah. there was. Now, you know, the, the single Laden, one Arab country. Yeah, that, and, the, that, and there was a communist country, and yet the bin Laden clan comes from Yemen. Wow. This Ultimately, is a, you know, I mean, it, this is very... I mean, it's it's not not all of these facts are necessarily relevant. It's all sort of interesting the way it it, it turns out. But um, but you know you can't except for that country. Communism hasn't been very successful in the Islamic world. It was necessary to influence Islam to becoming a kind of red Islam, sort of like liberation theology, and that's virulently anti-American. Uh -huh. That's controlled by Soviet agents that's fixated on, on taking on the West, not on taking on Russia, and then at the same time to create an alibi for Russia in this fake uh, Chechen Islamic threat. I mean, the Chechens aren't those kind of Islam, I Islamics. Uh, it's ridiculous. And uh, as Litvinenko shows in his, um, in his book, the first acts of terrorism, uh, the first act of terrorism was the attempt... Uh, by supposedly the Chechens to blow up a railway bridge on the Don, uh, not far from Rostov, and the guy accidentally blew himself up. Well, when they ID, they could ID the person because he's blown up and his ID was on him, and, and they found his ID. The guy was a known KGB operative. Wow. So the first supposed Chechen bombing, and this is in, in Levinenko's book, by the way, the first Chechen bombing is committed by a by a KGB agent. So, um, and then you had the, 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 that very peculiar uh, theater hostage siege in Moscow back in 2002, I'm thinking it was. Um, in yes. These uh, Chechen terrorists. And there were some uh, remarkable things about this. Um, supposedly, these Chechen terrorists took this theater, took the, uh, the audience and the, the people in the performance, they took them hostage and held them. And the government used this sort of sleeping gas on everybody. 
and it it killed a large number of people of of innocent people, but not one of the t- so-called terrorists survived. Mm-hmm. And I recall reading a story that the mother of one of the terrorists, and some of these terrorists were women, they had bombs strapped on them. The mother of the terrorist said, "How can my daughter be involved in this? She's in a Russian prison." Well, (laughs) imagine that. Not just dead people are dead, but people who are supposed to be in prison are running around with bombs. So they they let them go, provided with explosives, and Mm. put the condition, you want to go, you take part in this, and then you go. And then they kill them. Then they kill them. Or not. And, and, you know, you have that tragedy down in... uh, 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 down in Ossetia, down in, um, not Ossetia, down in um, the Caucasus. Um, Dagestan, Azerbaijan. No, uh, the one where all the children were killed in the school. And I'm forgetting. Well, the, yeah, best, it's called the Beslan tragedy. Beslan, the Beslan tragedy at Beslan, where you had, I don't when know. When the school it, was taken hostage. You know, 150, 200, 300 uh, people were killed. And it was interesting. The stories were that this Russian colonel, I'm thinking, was running these Chechen terrorists. And they supposedly, they, they, there's only like one person who survived. And of course, he claimed that he was being tortured or forced to speak in a way that wasn't telling the truth. And supposedly, no one ever showed the body of the supposed leader of this group. You know, there was a story at one point I read that they claimed they had his body in a meat locker. They were preserving it and... You know, just bizarre little details like that. Um, there's never really an accounting for this event, which, by the way, was used was the occasion for then President Vladimir Putin to make a kind of declaration of war on the United States. If you look at his speech in in Russian, he basically blames the United States for this act of terrorism, claiming that the U.S. is behind the terrorism in the Caucasus, although he doesn't name the United States. It's clear that's the country he means. He says in the speech something like, well, they're still afraid of us because we still have nuclear weapons and so they want to break up our country so they're behind this terrorism. They. They. The West. Yeah. The The capitalists. America. The emperors. Yeah. America. The the, the militarist American imperialists. Yeah. Um, This makes me sick. Yeah. It, and it is when I I, I mean I, I read every single uh, translation of this. You can watch Putin speaking in Russian on uh, on the computer. You can you can bring it up and watch it. It's a very creepy speech. His presentation is really interesting. He's an interesting public speaker. Putin is. Um, he is yes, of course. And he uh, is. and the 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 sort of uh, command that he has of himself when he's speaking. Um, you know, he's 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 he very much projects a kind of seriousness and strength, the gravity that uh, that a leader needs to project. But this speech, you know, it was like nobody in the West noticed. Nobody really read it that carefully. You know, people in the West they don't even read. So uh, uh, it was about two three weeks later, it started to appear. I forget whether it was the Washington Times or the New York Times, Washington Post. Somebody commented that some people in the intelligence community were kind of concerned because they had actually read it, and they were trying to pass it around saying, do you see what this guy's saying in the speech? He's kind of like 
blaming us and declaring war on us. And this is like he's saying this is their 9-11 and that they have to mobilize and prepare for war with his enemy that did this to them. And they're really, if you read it carefully, they're referring to us, the United States. Absolutely. Well, so, there's, so there's that these, shows that, that they want the war with us because of some reason. And well, that all this, what we're discussing, is a preparation to attack us clandestinely and, or openly yeah. or and both. In fact, the reality is they consider themselves, people like Putin and the top leadership there, consider themselves at war with us. And that much of what they're doing is, and of course what they were doing at Beslan was to bring a larger number of those who understand communist uh, Aesopian language, bring them in on the secret. So they, with these different events, they help to bring people who kind of can read between the lines because, let's face it, people who live in Russia, Russians are much better at, at, at grasping these things than Americans are. Americans read it and go, ah, that's just the crazy Russians. The Russians, those Russians who are smart and on the ball read that and they go, oh, okay, all right, we know where they're headed. We know what this is about. And, um, and it's... Uh, it really is happening. I'm sorry, people. It's happening. Uh, it's been happening for years. They they're very patient. They move very slowly, but uh, but it, it is true. And they're they're involved in a military buildup right now. And they're allied with China, and they're they're supporting regimes like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Well, they yes, they openly making friends with all of them. They have yes. they have an enormous amount in, of in, arms trade with China at the level yeah. of 10 billion a year, at least oh, for the last uh, 15 years. And and that's only officially. And of course now there's been open statements in the Russian press of, of Russian military officers saying that they want to train. They're they're going to organize to train the Cuban army. That the Russians are going to train and bring up to speed the the Cuban armed forces. Of this, of this Don't say that they're going to train them how to use nuclear weapons. Well, uh, or they, might. they don't have to. Well, why do they have to? Russia has a nuclear weapons. China has a nuclear weapons. You know, but uh, the Cubans, they've given, already given the Cubans chemical and biological weapons almost for certain. And so, you know, a war, and first an economic war against the United States is being waged. A penetration of the United States, a propaganda and deception war. But why are all these wars, what do these, all these wars mean? They don't mean anything unless they land the crushing blow and destroy the United States so they can dominate Europe and the Middle East, what they really want to dominate, and the Chinese can dominate the Pacific Rim and Asia, uh, and, uh, and they, they don't have the Americans preventing them from having the kind of dominance in the world that they want. This is what it's really all about, the bottom line. You know, behind all the ideology, all the deception, all the, the games, it's about power. You know, it's, of it's, course, it's like it's about uh, world what, power. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of the joke that James Burnham uh, says in one of his books. He says, politics is about three things. It's about power. It's about power. It's about power. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's it. That's a good one. That's yeah, that is a good one. So, uh, so, 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 is there anything more interesting that we we learned about um, President of Chechnya, former President of Chechnya, presumed dead? Well, re you know, reported dead President of Chechnya. His wife said on Russian television. What what else did she say of interest? Well, um, 
she goes into details of their life together like uh, when uh, when they met when she, uh, he was appointed uh, a commander of um, uh, aviation regiment and then she goes on things like that in that regiment they had a plane crash a military strategic bomber crash like every month and when my husband was appointed the commander he immediately took care of it and all these things stopped. And I know somebody, it's actually Alex that we interviewed recently, who served in aviation, in the Soviet aviation. And he goes, he read that interview and he says that this is a complete lie. It's just impossible what she says about the life of the military uh, aviation regiment. Everything is just uh, lies. It's not true. So it's like, then, then she goes that, well, it, she repeated it many times that supposedly when Dudayev wanted to be in, young, young boy Dudayev wanted to be enlisted in aviation, well, to, to join a military school of avi aviation, he had to lie that he was a Chechen origin. Why he had to lie? Because uh, Chechens were deported by Stalin. The whole Chechen nation was forcefully moved out of Chechnya to Kazakhstan. Most of, well, not most, but yeah, I think... Because, at least because the Nazi armies were advancing on the Caucasus and Stalin yes. was afraid of the Chechens' loyalty. But what's interesting is that, that uh, really the, the Chechen ethnicity of Dudayev has been questioned, called into question. Of course. And so she's, yes. trying, and this to, is what... uh, she's trying to explain why he, he, his military record shows he wasn't Chechen. That is right. What, that what is did right. He put, what did he and put? Did he put he was Ingushetian? Is that what he put in there? Something like that. So, but but see, it's it's very important to understand that strategic aviation, and well, of course, he rose to be a general of strategic general, yes. bombing aviation. General. It's someone who is responsible for the most secretive, the most important, the most well, one of the top tasks to bomb the number one enemy, the United States, with mm. nuclear bombs. Imagine the level of the importance of this man. He was one of the top people in the Soviet Union. Yeah. And this man kind of lied him himself, lied on his biography of his origin. This is totally impossible in the Soviet Union. Was yeah. totally impossible. Yeah. He would have so never lady, gotten anywhere. lady is just a liar. Uh -huh. huh. Yes. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is the strategiccrisis.com uh, podcast for Thanksgiving 2009. And uh, I'm talking with uh, Serge Kubud, a uh, Ukrainian-American who has been active in combating the Soviets and their deception strategy. Um you know, it, it's, it, it, it always fascinates me how they take over websites, they impersonate uh, freedom fighters, uh, as in the case of Gamsakurdia and, uh, and Dudayev and uh, Vizayev, and they, they twist everything around, they control both sides in a conflict, they create fake enemies, and they set their, they create complete confusion in their real enemies. Um, <clears throat> how, <clears throat> How many people in Ukraine do you think understand the way this system works? 
Uh, wouldn't it be true that people in the former Soviet Union, a lot of them are, uh, although there's a there's a there's a small number who are more aware than here in the West that that the general public is just as confused as the Westerners. It's it's an interesting issue, and I remember uh, we discussed it once, and uh, I kind of I, I will use our like collective uh, brainstorming result from them, and uh, see it's um, not many people are aware of the general plan, approach, or strategy of Kremlin, because it is all created secretively. Uh, probably what the top people know, the lower level don't know, and the rank and file never knew. And then we have some leaks in forms of defectors' report. Defectors those very rare defectors who actually have something to say that is of a strategic importance, like Anatoly Galitsyn or Jan Seina or Bukowski, Vladimir Bukowski. He's yeah. not exactly a defector, but, but he, a he, very, stole, he, very stole a, he stole a lot of top secret documents from, from the communist That is right, archive. yes, yes. He got lucky in that. So, and then we have these this, uh, sources, and they are published in the West, mostly in English, and here in the West, they are, they are not really understood because the culture here doesn't really ring the, the, same, the same bell, doesn't really have the niche to understand it, so devious and so strange to the Westerner is the methods of deception and confu creating confusion, false... Uh, freedom fighters, all that. So uh, the West is kind of like kind of neutral to that. And then, and then in the so former Soviet Union, those books, those defectors report, those kind of that kind of analysis is practically unknown. And well, with the exception of Bukowski, but his subjects are only only a fraction of what is needed to understand the whole picture. And, but in the, in, the, in the last few years, we see that the information from the West, from this defectist literature, is kind of getting back to Russia. We have a parts of Galitsyn books translated into Russia. We have the Bukowski book published in, Ru in, in Russian, the Moscow Process book that actually was never published in English. It was published in French was published in Polish, was published in Russian. Not sure it was ever published in in German. Yes, it was published, but never in English. So and then and then it's like it's still a knowledge of a few. And this is why this strategy is so successful. This is why millions or billions of people believe in this Al Qaeda story that mm -hmm. you started our conversation with so uh, but when you when you if you get your education in the Soviet times you were forced to learn elements of Marxism in school and in college and uh, if you remember some of those it's basically about the same thing the terminology is different uh, the uh, sabotagers are called uh, 
progressive forces, the uh, uh, subversive elements are called uh, the forces of uh, peace and socialism, you know, things like that. Yes. So, yeah, the lingua is a little different. And uh, the Soviet person who actually paid attention and learned that can sort of retune his brain and grasp the the the, the the subject matter much better than the Americans. So I foresee that the defective literature, that the our subjects could be comprehended in the former Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Yes, I despair of Americans understanding this material at all. But but in my conversations with Czechs and Poles and Ukrainians and Russians, they seem to some of them already understand it, others of them need just a little coaxing to think back, and once they have a chance to look at this material carefully, they all go, oh wow, this is the key that opens the door to understanding everything that's been happening the last 20 years. And also what I found, you know what kind of people easy, easier understand it? People who deal with quantum mechanics, theoretical physics, physics in general, that kind of science. And you know why? Because that sort of a brain set trains you to uh, analyze a multiple factors at the same time mm -hmm. and kind of gives you an ability to separate more important factors from less important factors. Yes, and that, there is is, the key, that, that is, you're absolutely right. That's the key thing. You have to be able to tell what's important from what's trivial. Yes, Absolutely. that is, that is that is right, and uh, uh, that that's why that's why many of uh, our friends uh, who uh, grasp the subject they 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 are professional physicists and uh, people involved in in that kind of research. Hmm. It's interesting. very interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, we're coming to the end of our hour, uh, Serge. I want to thank you for joining us. This has been the strategic crisis.com podcast for Thanksgiving week uh, 2009 and I hope uh, uh, those who visit the site will look for further podcasts in the future and uh, Serge thanks for being uh, being on thank you Jeff it's always a pleasure